welcome to this week's episode of Finding the Glitter and the Gold, a Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And as always, we're discussing the works of John Ronald Rayle Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle Earth from 1937, when he was 45, up until his death in 1973. And we are continuing um, our discussion from last week's talk about translations of The Hobbit. This week, we're going to be talking about translations of Lord of the Rings. And also, Zoe did some awesome research into uh, copyright law for translations because we had a bunch of questions last week that we didn't have the answers to. So now we maybe have more answers to those. <laughs> Hopefully. It was also really interesting, like, reading some of the the precedents and the, the the cases that went through and like what some people wrote and didn't get legal, like legal grounds for was kind mm. of interesting yeah legality and, and copyright stuff is something i'm always kind of worried about as someone who makes podcasts and steals music to put in those podcasts um, it's probably illegal. Just, just saying, like I know, any, probably any use of anything at this point, unless it's like from one of those websites that's like, we do not copyright our music. Anything besides that is probably illegal. Well, I, I did a little bit of work into the, uh, the the music that we use for our intro and outro is from a website that's called like Free Music Archive or something. Yeah, those like those places are fine, but like yeah. anything else. I know. Like the, I, I wanted so bad to like do some kind of riff off of the actual Hobbit's music, and then I was like, "That is very illegal." Nope. Yeah, I haven't dropped anything from the soundtracks into our work. I have put in the bit where J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien was singing from YouTube videos, and hopefully his estate will not find us for that. I mean, I was reading like this this person who's a translator was giving a bunch of advice to people who want to become translators about copyright. And a lot of people, I guess, get an in to the literary translation by submitting their translations of things to different magazines. Mm -hmm. um, and there was people being like, well, if I'm submit, if I'm like translating this one poem, do I have to go through the entire process of getting uh, legal rights to it? Because it's it can be a bit of a process. And the person was like, technically, yes, but also the likelihood of an estate or an author actually coming after you for a singular poem in a tiny little translating magazine is probably very low. So they're not going to waste time and resources on that because that's not going to really bring them much money nor prevent them from making any money because you're not making any money. So, but it's like, you know, if we took this podcast and then somehow started selling ads on it and made millions of dollars, they'd probably be pissed to come after us, but we're not going to do that. No. So it's probably fine. Yes. Um, it was very interesting. I, I follow a lot of web comics and one of the earliest ones that I followed was by E.K. Weaver. Um, she did the less than epic adventures of TJ and Amal, which has a lot of musical lyrics included in text. Like the music is a big part of, kind of the background of this story, which is a cross-country road trip. And um, she made the choice to actually go and try and get uh, copyright for all of those, like permission to use little snippets of song lyrics throughout the book. And she documented that process. And it was really interesting to watch and also like disturbingly expensive. Um, yeah. She wanted to publish this and publish it kind of mainstream. And so that's how you do it. And on the other side, 
I read a lot of fan fiction and people will include lyrics and quotes of things in that and sometimes just like make a pastiche that's totally ripping off of a book as we've talked about before um, that's making fun of a particular plot line or style or something like that like kind of drawing on that and um, you can do that as long as you're not making any money off of it kind of we'll get into that i did a bunch of research actually about fan fiction copyright law so we'll get into that yeah exciting talking about it and so i kind of went down that path so yeah we'll get into that it's okay it's uh okay let's start with uh the translation of lord of the rings yes the trilogy and um this as i we said in the last episode was pretty fraught with problems the very first translation of Lord of the Rings was into Swedish, and that happened in 1947. And Tolkien had a lot of issues with the translator, whose name I'm going to mispronounce, but it looks like it's uh, Eike Olmarks. And um, Olmarks just had a ton of errors in his translation. Um, Tolkien wrote a letter about this in 1957 to Rainer Unwin. Um, who he, Tolkien described the translation as puzzling and irritating. There's a huge list of names in, that he had altered, and he uh, Tolkien didn't speak Swedish very well, but he could recognize it a little bit better than um, other languages. And it's the impression that Tolkien got was that Dr. Olmarks is a conceited person, less competent than charming Max Schubert, though he thinks much better of himself. This was uh, the 263rd letter from Tolkien. Um, and then he has descriptions of these mistranslations. There's Ford of Brunian, which was translated as Bjornavad, which is bear ford. And like the mountains of Lune, uh, Ered Lune, are Manbergen, which is Moon Mountains. And like, Olmark's just kind of made some weird translation choices that aren't really based on anything. Um, this one for Rivendell is weird. Yeah, Vatnadal, which means Waterdale. For Rivendell, like not really, okay. Mm. Uh, hilariously, um, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eskaroth, he has it as Snigalov, which is snail leavings. Um, not sure what Eskaroth Eskaroth is, but he's probably like associating with escargot from the French for snail. It's a, it's a, it's a region or a town. Okay. I live in snail leavings. Okay. Oh, <laughs> um, Marks also apparently forgot what choices he already made, and he rendered uh, Isengard as Isengard, Isengard, Isendor, or Isendal. <laughs> so, okay. how how do you? you've already decided like can you can you not just go back and check yourself like this is what an editor is for an editor should be like yo dude brah you have like four different things in here for Isengard make a choice what do you want but we need to be consistent like where is your editor you need to at least be taking some notes of what you decided like once you've chosen a way to translate a name a proper name you should stick with that one translation Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, Mark's prose is also criticized for being hyperbolic and laden with, pro- with poetic anachronisms, where the original uses simple or even laconic language. There are also just straight up factual errors and mistranslations of idioms and non sequiturs, and they have examples of those as well. Um, so in The Lord of the Rings, there's a line that says seven stars and seven 
seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. And then in the Swedish translation that Olmarks did, it says three stars and seven stones and the whitest tree you may see. So uh, he's missing four stars. And yeah. that second part does not mean the same thing at all. No, and the connotation. That's like a pretty important part of a poem in like it, it's part of the history is a pretty important part of uh the return of the king when unfortunately Olmark's translation was the only one available in swedish for 40 years and until his death in 1984 Olmark's remained impervious to the numerous complaints and calls for revision from readers after the silmarillion was published in 1977 christopher tolkien consented to a swedish translation only on the condition that Olmark's have nothing to do with that translation <laughs> And Olmark's kind of, Olmark's kind of lost it. He had a fire happen in his home in 1982, and he blamed Tolkien fans with arson. He thought that they had attacked his house. Um, he also subsequently published a book connecting Tolkien with black magic and Nazism. But that Swedish translation was superseded in 2005 with a new translation by Eric Anderson with the poems interpreted by Lotta Olsen which is a, a theme that we saw in The Hobbit as well, where someone will translate the prose and someone else will do the poetry, which is pretty common in this sort of thing, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I, I find that interesting in terms, like, is it because maybe a translator for the literary aspect of it isn't necessarily the best translator for the poetic like, aspect? Like, that's just an interesting choice or they wanted to make sure that they could keep a similar feel of the poetry, so they brought somebody else in, so it would be maybe less biased or, like, less subjective. Like, you know when you look at something for too long and you kind of get overwhelmed by it? Mm -hmm. um, like, maybe they just wanted a different eye. I don't know. I just find that really fascinating. I mean, it's kind of a different art to it, poetry versus writing prose. Even if you're a writer who's writing original work, it feels different personally, when I sit down to write a poem versus when I sit down to write a story. Totally. And so it could be you pick somebody to do the story because they're a good translator and they know enough, you know, English and Swedish to make that switch. But then you get somebody who's more specialized in translating poetry and knows like the meter and rhythm to maintain how to make things rhyme and still keep that sort of flavor of a poem. Precisely. Yeah. It's just so cool. It's so cool. What was also interesting is that Anderson also translated The Hobbit in 2007, which was the third Swedish translation of The Hobbit, but it was the first time that The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings were available in Swedish from the same translator. And Tolkien fans and Swedish media in general were really interested in this translation, and Anderson consulted a lot of Tolkien fans. Uh, he had them on as advisors, which is awesome. Cool. And uh, he actually published his own notes on the translation project in 2007 as well, which would be really interesting to see. It's in Swedish, obviously, so like that's useless to me, but um, the process of translating and the thought that went into it and whatever notes he had taken during that process, that would be really cool to look at. It would basically just be like a how-to guide of translation. Mm -hmm. Or one person's process for it. I mean, it's the same with like research papers or anything. The way I research paper is different than the way others might do so. It's kind of cool. It'd be interesting to read in terms of like, this is one way, how do I learn from it? Yeah. What worked, didn't work. It's like a scientific method of translation. Yeah. Um, another, like just to dive into all the bad experiences that Tolkien had with translations of his work into other languages. Uh, there was a Dutch translation in 1960 done by Max Schuchart, uh, 
which I was referenced a second ago, um, it was, <sighs> Tolkien wrote a letter, letter uh, 190, written in 1956, that says, in principle, I object as strongly as is possible to the, quote, translation of the nomenclature at all, even by a competent person. I wonder why a translator should think himself called on or entitled to do any such thing. That this is an imaginary world does not give him any right to remodel it according to his fancy, even if he could in a few months create a new coherent structure, which it took me years to work out. May I say at once that I will not tolerate any similar tinkering with the personal nomenclature, nor with the name slash word Hobbit. He's very proud and he's very protective. Yes. yes. According to Wikipedia, if you do read the Dutch version, very little has changed except the names of certain characters, which were done so that there wouldn't be reading difficulties for the Dutch people who don't speak any English. And Schuchart's translation, as of 2008, was the only authorized translation in Dutch, but there's unauthorized translations uh, dating from the late 1970s as well. Um, Wait, how was there an unauthorized, like, did they not get permission to use it? Was this pre-copyright laws? Was it, uh? Well, it's the 1970s, but they have an unauthorized translation by E.J. Mensik van Warmelo, which is an author. (laughs) So unauthorized might just be they didn't get permission for it and have, like, a, I don't know, underground copy available. I would wonder if any of that would have to do as well potentially with copyright laws in different nations being different at different times. Um, Like currently copyright and translation laws of the US are pretty standard in terms of international copyright, but that wasn't until the eighties. And so I I wonder if maybe like the UK had a certain law, but the Dutch didn't and vice versa. And so they were, they just wrote it without it being on the books. And now they're like, oh, but there's copyright. And they're like, well, we're just not going to worry about that because that happened a long time ago. Yeah, it could be dependent on how you publish it and who's getting like the royalties from that as well. Yeah. I'm not sure, though. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, just to say it really quickly, according to uh, L. Ron's library, which is where I got information on all of the translations, and you can check that, li- uh, you can check that link out if you want to see all the different covers in different countries, which is really cool. Uh, but in terms of Lord of the Rings, there have been 87 translations plus 17 revised translations into 57 languages of the trilogy. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. It's referenced a little bit in Tolkien's letter how much he cared about names and names staying the same and how he did not want anyone to mess with the Hobbit as a word. And there's a guide to the names of the Lord of the Rings that kind of steers translation that was compiled by Tolkien in 1966 to 1967 and was intended for the benefit of translators, especially for translations into Germanic languages. The first translations to use the guideline were in Danish and German, which both were put out in 1972. Okay, the, the German last name is definitely not very German. Margaret Caru. Caru. That's a, yeah, it looks like a very French name to me, but okay. Do you ever see, do you remember uh, the movie Joy Noel? Oh, yes. I love that movie. Well, uh, there's a part in there where a German guy is speaking to a French guy and the French guy compliments him on his ability to speak French and the German guy is like, well, my wife is French. Yes, I remember this. So maybe, maybe she's married to a Frenchman, but she's German? Yeah, 
or the, yeah. the, the countries are very close together. So I feel like there's a lot of exchange of peoples <laughs> across the border. And languages. And languages too. Yeah. Because of his really bad experiences with the Dutch and Swedish translations of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien asked that, quote, when any further translations are negotiated, I should be consulted at an early stage. After all, I charge nothing and can save a translator a good deal of time in puzzling. And if consulted at an early stage, my remarks will appear far less in the light of peevish criticisms. This is from a letter in 1957, which is a pretty nice way of saying I will help you at the beginning and if you consult me later I might be more pissed (laughs) he's always so polite when he says that he's pissed off at things (laughs) yes Christopher Tolkien helps with editing this after Tolkien's death the guide to the names of Lord of the Rings um, so that it stayed kind of up to date and uh, clear to people who were wanting to translate his father's works the, the Wikipedia page went into some of the guidelines that he had put together. So there's abbreviations that he uses for common speech, which is abbreviated as CS, which in the original text is represented by English. And then LT is the target language of the translation. His approach is the prescription that if in doubt, a proper name should not be altered, but left as it appears in the English original. The names in English form, such as the Dead Marshes, uh, should be translated straightforwardly, while the names in Elvish should be left unchanged. And the difficult cases are those names where the author, who is acting as a translator of Elvish names already devised and used in the book or elsewhere, took pains to produce a common speech name that is both a translation and also a name of familiar English style, even if it doesn't actually occur in England, which, for example, is Rivendell which is a translation from Elvish, uh, what is it? Cinderin yeah. Imladris? Imladris. Yeah, which is Glen of the Cleft, or Westerness, which is a translation of Numenor. And so the list suggests uh, old, obsolescent, or dialectical words in the Scandinavian and Germanic languages. So he's actually suggesting ways you should translate Rivendell into another language, which is kind of cool. It's also interesting in terms of how some characters and some places have more than one name. Like Aragorn, for example, has, we counted them, six. Yeah. <laughs> Gandalf has four or five. Yeah, um, at least. Like, like, I wonder, it doesn't say here, but I would be curious to see if he like went through with the characters and was like, you should use Aragorn, but then here are all the translations for all of his other other names that we use to refer- reference him by Strider and Elfstone and Elisar and like some of Long them Longshanks. Longshanks. Some of them are like English. Some of them are Elvish. Some of you know, it's just like okay, how are you going to translate all these things? Well, those those kind of moments where somebody has multiple names, I, I love those because it's usually very telling about how another character sees them, which name they choose to use. So Arwen using his Elvish name would be one way, and then Sam calling him Longshanks because Sam uh, always wants to pick a fight. Those are a couple of very good character examples. Yeah. You want to talk about the Japanese translation? Yeah. There are two different Japanese translations. Um, and I found the the Japanese ones a little very interesting because Japanese has so many different forms in terms of like politeness levels. And the uh, the one of them published in 2012 was written in the polite masu form, which I guess would just be like very 
um, formal, maybe formal. Yeah, like the entire thing was just very formal. Hmm. Um, but the one in 1965, translated by Seta, um, there was a conversation about this at forums.theonering.com. It didn't literally have a name of who wrote this. It was like this long block text. Mm -hmm. So I don't know who was this conversation, but they were, they were talking about how they read enough Japanese to understand it and compare and some of the things they found interesting about this 1965 translation. Uh, quote, it's wonderfully interesting how Seta marked how each character spoke and modified the Japanese to reflect their personalities and relationship to the people whom they are speaking to. For example, the hobbits all speak generally politely, if somewhat familiarly. They rarely use archaic speech. And Aragorn responds in like form to them. When Aragorn speaks to others, his speech gets markedly more archaic. His Japanese when speaking to Theoden is extremely archaic and polite. It's archaic and familiar when he speaks to Eomer. And when Eomer speaks to Aragorn, it's archaic and somewhat deferential, which makes sense in Japan since Eomer is merely a marshal of the mark, while Aragorn is the heir of ancient kings. And so, like, we don't really have that so much in English, um, but the fact that you can mark it to be, like, just in between characters really show their relationship to each other and the rank, mm. and the fact that that was taken into account by this translator, um, like, how a translation and the, the culture of that translation affects what is translated and how it's written is super fascinating. Yeah. Um, also, in comparison to a lot of the other translations, Seta was a poet himself, and he wrote haiku and other Japanese poems. So for the poetry and songs in The Lord of the Rings, he forewent direct translation, except for transliteration for the Elvish songs, and wrote poems that had the same meaning but were in the Japanese style of alternating seven and five syllable segments. So again, he took his own culture and applied it to Tolkien poetry and just hmm. rewrote the poems himself. But as haikus. Yeah, as haikus. That's so interesting. I want to read those. I'm very curious how you turn these into haiku. There was a thing I was doing for a while when I had like too many feelings. Usually when I was really angry, I would write a haiku about why I was mad because like fitting it into that form was a process that made me like kind of step out of myself and see the problem and simplify it and stuff. So fitting those into a format while trying to maintain the same message. I would be very curious how that was achieved. That's awesome. I should see if there's like a translation of the translation back into English. Um, when I was in college, I did a, uh, a semester of um, Japanese aesthetic and culture studies was the name of the class. Mm -hmm. And we read a lot of Basho. Um, yeah. And I'm just trying to think of like some of the Tolkien poems put into very simplified form. Like Tolkien used very beautiful language, but very sometimes archaic and lofty language in his poems. And I'm just really curious, syllable wise, how that was structured. Well, I'm, I think the one that I'm thinking of kind of the most strongly is that poem that we actually take our name from where it was all, all those golds does not glitter not all those who wander are lost the old that is strong does not wither deep roots are not reached by the frost from the ashes a fire shall be woken a light from the shadows shall spring renewed shall be blade that was broken the crownless again shall be king that would totally fit into some sort of haiku in terms of the imagery that they're using but mm -hmm. the structure of it in english is very 
different and how could it potentially change the meaning of it yeah god that's so interesting we're gonna do an episode on tolkien's poetry yes we are yes we are anyway let's talk about copyright law (laughs) copyright law so um there is the u.s copyright act which um 1978 was when the most like recent copyright law came into effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, but things have been around for a long time. This has probably been an issue for a long time. Although it Mm. seems like copyright laws were almost originally meant to encourage the creation and um, disbursement of creative material because they wanted authors and media and artists to know that their work would be protected. And like the idea was, oh, well, if we have this copyright act, then people won't be worried that their work will be stolen and sold for money that they should have made. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to protect artists. Yeah. And that was kind of the original, at least from what I was reading, some of the original thought behind creating a copyright law. I've seen some interesting debates about this online. Neil Gaiman had some opinions about it mm-hmm. um, that I thought was were, was really interesting because he's a person who's had like his fan fiction published of Sherlock Holmes and of Lovecraft and things like that. And some things are public domain, which I'm sure you're going to get into. Um, mm-hmm. But some things are very carefully guarded, even post the author's death. They they can still be um, kept in trust by the family and Neil Gaiman had some issues with that or he's like I I feel comfortable with it providing for my children I'm less comfortable with my grandchildren still benefiting from my works and holding on to that um and obviously there's a lot of different opinions out there depending on the authors but it was an interesting thought to me the fact that your family can make money off of you for in perpetuity sometimes as far as we can tell from now but yeah Sorry. And that's what the that's what the Tolkien estate is probably going to do because they've kept up the copyright law for the Lord of the Rings. And, and they are very litigious. Yes, they are yes, they are yeah. They are actually kind of known for that. Yeah, it's not great. Samuel Beckett mm. is another one where I'm like, God damn it. Yeah. Because he will never his estate will not let a uh, female production of Waiting for Godot happen. And like that is my dream role is to be either Vladimir or Estragon in that. And I'm like, oh that is stupid it's sexist but whatever anyway anyway um in copyright law if you publish a thing it can be any kind of media written verbal song um instrumental movie whatever you make it it's yours um you have copyright whether or not you actually apply for a copyright which is kind of helpful, but also like, and then what's the point of applying? But the application process just solidifies it and it's on record. That lasts until your death plus 70 years. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's after 70 years, you have to reapply, like what the Tolkien estate does. If you don't reapply or you choose not to, then it becomes public domain, uh, which Hannah mentioned. And that's basically where anyone can use it. There's no copyright on it anymore. Sometimes it happens if it's an older work before copyright law or if it's um, like a lot of Shakespeare's plays are public domain because they're super duper old. And so you're not going to put copyright on that. And then people can um, make plays of them. It becomes more easily accessible to put on productions and things like that. So there's a lot of things that are public domain and don't have copyright. So then in terms of translation, a translation is considered a derivative work, uh, which means anything that is derived from that. It's used from the original work 
and comes from that work is still under copyright. So only the copyright owner can authorize a translation that will be distributed. And this includes works that are translated into another language and distributed in parts of the world where that language is spoken. Derivative works are infringing if they are not created with the permission of the copyright holder. Thus, a work of fiction or a best-selling biography cannot be translated into another language and distributed without the original author's or copyright holder's permission. Um, and sometimes it won't be the author who has the copyright. They sometimes sell the rights to their publisher or the publisher will be like, hey, I want this as part of my contract, um, which kind of, you know, sucks for the author. Yeah. Hang on to your copyright if you make anything. Like, it, yeah. sometimes it'll expire. Like, I'm I'm getting a story published and it'll the rights will revert back to me after one year so I can do whatever I want with it after that. Yeah. It's like, first right of publishing in an anthology. Like, that yeah. kind of thing. Try to hold on to your copyrights, people. <laughs> yeah, it gets it can get really ugly otherwise. But um, if the author authorizes the translation, then the author owns the copyright in the translation since the translation is a work for hire. Hmm. And because in, in the case of a work for hire, the employing party is the author. Um, and you don't actually even have to uh, put the translator's name on the work if you don't want to because hmm. you still technically have the copyright of it. That would be such a dick move, though. Yeah, it would be a dick move, but legally, it's still yours. Um, and there are some translations that definitely would meet the originality requirement for um, if you were to write something and ask for copyright of this translation, like a new translation of an ancient Greek play or an epic poem, you could apply for copyright of your translation because the underlying work is in the public domain. Yes, um, and so very public domain. <laughs> Yes, very, very, very public domain. Usually from so, 500 BC. So you can, so you can take it and it's yours. Yeah. Or not yours, but whatever you create from it is yours. Yeah. And that was kind of one of the, the interesting things about translation work is there are some loopholes in terms of if it is original or if it does not infringe upon the money that you will make that the author or copyright holder would make from it, then sometimes you can get away with certain amounts of... Well, specifically, I guess, in terms of fan fiction, in terms of using a work, sometimes you can get away with it. For example, going down the fan fiction rabbit hole, um, this became a really big thing in the early 2000s, and that's kind of when fanfic.net and a lot of big fan fiction sites were really gaining momentum and becoming pretty popular. Um, and they actually had to go back and say that anything published on the internet is effectively publishing. Um, and so, therefore, anything you publish on the internet without copyright permission is copyright infringement. So this means that fan fiction as we know it is copyright infringement. And that was decided by McArdle in 2003. Even if you're not making money from it? Even if you're not making money from it, because mm -hmm. you are using the work of something that is copyrighted. Again, mm -hmm. if you're using a work that's public domain, then it's fine. But if you're using like Harry Potter, definitely copyrighted. And it's not like, fan and the thing is, it's not like fan fiction they're using only a little tiny piece of the story. You're usually using places and names and situations and events and all these different ideas. And you're, you're just, you're writing your own story, but you're using so much of the original narrative that you, it, it's, it's copyright infringement. This is very interesting because I'm, I'm kind of embedded in this sort of thing. I write fan fiction and I read a lot of it and I follow a lot of people who are very embedded in fandom traditions. Um, mm -hmm. A friend of mine actually studied it for her master's. And um, there's a guy right now who's, he's like in his 40s, and he's been writing fan fiction for over 20 years. 
and he's um, revising a story that he published as a Harry Potter fan fiction to make it an original work um, so that he can kind of publish it on his own. And he doesn't make a ton of money off of this. He does it mostly for the love of writing, but it's been interesting him talking about the process of changing it enough so that it's not too close to uh, Rowling's work. Mm-hmm. And we have examples of this happening with that fucking uh, Fifty Shades of Grey book, which was originally yes. a Twilight fan fiction, and then it got yes. basically cut, like, uh, find replaced with the names. And it was far enough away from the vampire world that it like, kind of slid. Yeah. And, th- and that's the thing, is, like, it's, it's, it's kind of a slippery slope of how much do you use, how much did you change, is it original enough? And it, this is also like, then this constitutes fair use as well, which is some of the ways you can get around copyright infringement is through this, these fair use ideas. And it goes by a, on a case by case basis. But basically, if it's meant for educational or nonprofit use, uh, if the work doesn't use a lot of the original work in it, um, or if the fan fiction doesn't affect the market and commercial value of the original work, then you can usually get by. It's also often on an author basis if they're willing to prosecute. Exactly. And there's like an entire list. Um, I, I didn't write down that the website, but there's a list that fan fiction folk have put together of authors who are okay with it and authors who really don't like it. Yeah. There's also um, a disclaimer that I've heard in uh, the, the Magnus Archives podcast that I've been listening to where they have like a, a disclaimer at the end of every episode that basically says you can use our work to inspire you as long as you don't make any money off of it. Right. So that would go into the fair use. And then, so interestingly though, parody and criticism have their own case laws and are usually protected under fair use law. But this gets a little tricky because Mm. like, what if you get sued and then you post hoc or like it was parody or criticism, but again, it's a case by case basis. So for example, there was a woman who wrote um, a version of J.D. Salinger, 60 Years in the Future. So he had aged the, what's the main character's Catching name? Catching the Rye? Holden Caulfield? Or sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, so Caulfield was 60 years old. And so she wrote this entire thing and like blah, 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 got sued. And she was like, no, it was meant as like, a, like it, it added on to the, to the literary world and it was meant almost as a parody. And the, the judge ended up saying that was post hoc rationalization and she had to, not publish it in the U.S. She was a Swedish author trying oh. to get ready to publish in the U.S. And they were like, nope, you can't publish it here. And she actually withdrew her publishing um, rather than having to pay a bunch of money because um, it was specifically only in the U.S. that it was an issue. That's so interesting. The opposite, like something totally different happened with um, someone wrote a sequel to Jane Eyre that was yeah. the Wide Sargasso Sea. And- and I don't know why it why some things work and some things don't. Well, that was probably based on the your author's death plus seventy years mm, thing. So then it might have been public domain if they it had was public domain at that point. I bet you could do a lot of public domain. I mean, they published Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah, like, that's true, and that's public domain because yes, yeah, public domain. Yeah. yeah, so it was around the same time. Yeah. So there was, and to put a kind of again going at the opposition here, um, there was an example in Sunchess versus Hooten Miffin. Uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit vacated a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction sought by the copyright holders of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind Mm -hmm. against Alice Randall's The Wind Done Gone. And in determining whether Randall's work 
rose to the, to the level of transformative, again, so being original enough that it could be published, the circuit judge Birch used the guidelines for transformative works laid out in the Supreme Court's Campbell versus Echo of Rose Music. Don't know what that is, but okay. Um, and Birch found that Randall's work was transformative because it provided social benefit by shedding light on an earlier work and in the process creating a new one. Campbell had already established that the greater the transformative value a work held, the less important the other factors in the fair use test became. So despite Randall and Houghton Mifflin having released The Wind Done Gone as a commercial work and Randall having used a substantial portion of Mitchell's work in her own, Birch found that the highly transformative nature of Randall's book overcame the other prongs of the fair use test. Interesting. So you have to adjust it enough that it's creative enough in your own way and it, it has to shed light it has to have make it so my, my guess based off of this i haven't actually read this but based off of the um title i'm guessing that alice randall's version uh might have looked more at the african-american slave side of mm. southern confederate south in the time period of gone with the wind and so probably used the same characters um, but to shed light on slavery and uh, other historical aspects of that time, um, which would go with how the judge said that it provided yeah. social benefit and created a new one and shed light on an earlier work. So it probably showed the opposite side of this rather whitewashed uh, Gone with the Wind. And so therefore, even though it was the same story, it had a bigger impact than just you know, some sort of fan fiction style thing. Yeah, I'm looking it up on Wikipedia. Uh, Gone with the Wind focused on the life of the daughter of a wealthy slave owner. And The Wind Gone tells the story of the life of one of her slaves, Sonara, Precisely. during the same time period and events. So it's following the same general plot structure as Gone with the Wind, but from the slave's perspective. That is interesting. Yeah, I can see the argument for that, um, especially with some of these older works. And it's interesting to me, um, my brother's currently reading a bunch of Lovecraft stories right now. <laughs> and um, I've been reading a lot of gay Lovecraftian horror romance novels, um, which is very different because H.P. Lovecraft was probably the most rat massive racist ever and uh, was so afraid of everything. And every piece of work that has been made using his, um, I don't know, ideas about cosmic horror has been more interesting to me than actually reading any of his stories would be, I think. So basically I need to get some references from you so I can read these. Uh, yeah, I don't recommend, they're not great, but oh, they okay. are entertaining. And okay, there's a wow. lot of, there's a lot of really good Lovecraftian horror and Lovecraftian fiction out there um, that has been written by people who took what ideas were good in there and left all of the disturbing racism and anti-Semitism and, uh, sexism and homophobia and all that kind of stuff that he was working with. And they made something totally different, um, that as I'd imagine about as far from Lovecraft's values as you could get. <laughs> That's awesome. And so that to me is a good transformative work right there. <laughs> It's a has a societal imperative there. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, this is so interesting. Copyright is very complicated and puzzling to me. And part of it is very valuable where I feel like when you make something, you automatically own it. 
Yeah. You know, um, I do see it causing a lot of problems for authors um, and creators, especially now, uh, because so many people are making fan fiction of their works. If they read something in a fan fiction that's too similar to a plot line that they're creating, they can be sued for stealing a fan's idea and using it in canon works. So it can flip all the way around. But would the fan fiction already have been suable because of the nature of fan fiction? It's, it's, a, it's a long and confusing process to litigate this kind of thing. And you're basically litigating someone who's probably not in a financial position to pay you very much. Right. A lot of what keeps fan fiction a little bit safer is the fact that the places that you post it do not allow you to ask for money for these things. You can do your own public, like self-publishing, like you can put it on Amazon or whatever. But if you want to post it on some of the major fan fiction sites, they do not allow you to tell anyone if you have a Patreon or a coffee or anywhere that you can be tipped for this kind of thing. Right. Um, they basically are just like, do not tell anybody to give you money for this. Because if you do, you are opening yourself up to being sued for this sort of work. Because it's when you start making money off of it that authors get angry. Um, cause you know, that money rightfully belongs to them or whatever. <laughs> I mean, in, in a lot of ways I can under, I can understand parts of that. I mean, from, from, okay. So for like, from a circus perspective, there's been a, and I'd be curious how this applies to circus. Cause that's mm. a little more difficult, Perform- but like, harder, yeah. yeah, I know there was this duo trapeze artist who was in the school in Montreal and they created this amazing, rather death defined, like impressively technical move one trick one like it took them two years to figure out how to do it consistently enough and safely enough to not die like it was it was that kind of skill um not just something you would teach in a class of trapeze class for rec students like it was their move they had done it they were premiering it at the Cirque du Monde which is like the, the biggest circus festival in the world in Paris um and I don't know, it was like three or four months before they were supposed to go and do their act in Paris. Mm-hmm. And someone had seen a thing that they had posted on Instagram, like it was part of the trick, figured out the trick and ended up performing it. Before, like, and, they, and they got so mad. Like they called them out on social media. They said they had stolen their work. The people were like, no, it's circus. Like we take tricks, we do them. We like share them, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, no, we spent two years of like blood, sweat, and tears, trying to figure this out so neither of us would get hurt. And then you saw this like snippet of it online, decided to copy it, and then started selling it as a performance right before we were supposed to go to this big giant festival yeah. and then make like make make our money off of it. Like this is how we make our money. Mm-hmm. Um, and people got really split around. Is it their right? Is it not their right? Who gets it? This is the circus. Things are fluid. We share ideas. But like, I don't know, man, if I had spent two years working on this thing and like had gone through that entire process to not choke out my partner accidentally on a trapeze bar. Yeah, I'd be I'd be a little frustrated. Yeah, Yeah, that's a hard one to navigate, too. I feel like social media is messing with it a lot. Again, because what I'm seeing is uh, Sean and McGuire has people suggesting plot points to her and she's asked please do not ever do this to me because you've put me in the position where now if I use this it looks like I stole it from you 
Right. And social media is so much about like sharing progress on things so you don't see the finished piece and it keeps people engaged and it's really interesting to see and you know you appreciate getting to see part of the process but there is that risk of people seeing something and being like oh I could I could do that or I could do something close enough to that like that I'm using it but it's like it's mine now you know that kind of thing yeah that just feels so icky but there's also again the fact that there's nothing new under the sun like every story's been told before it's just the way that you tell it that is different Mm -hmm. and it's it's difficult to know that about like the human body like every trick has been done before or like what is out there to be discovered and then it'll just get used more and more. I'm thinking about like in terms of physicality, this one's really interesting actually to think about. Um, I saw some video that was like the winning gymnastics routine from the 1950s versus the winning gymnastics routine from now. And the amount of extra work you have to do now to get some sort of recognition for that is just disturbing. Whereas the other one, it was like, I did one flip on a pommel horse. Have you seen the comparisons of women's gymnast, women's uneven uneven bars from the '60s to now? Like literally, literally the uneven bars. They're like, let me do a split between the bars. Like I hold on to one bar and I put my foot up on the other bar. Look, I'm in a split. And now you have like people like Simone Biles doing their own tricks and like defying gravity. And you're like, whoa, we went a, we made a big jump in 40 years. Like in what was expected of women's physical capabilities. That's cool. But at the same time, part of me kind of gags inside because I'm like, oh my god. Like the bar was so much lower, lower at the very beginning. And I mean, the bar was even lower back in Greek times when it was like, you just have to be naked and running. And that's the Olympics, you know? And now it's a big spectacle event that is not happening this year with good reason. Um, Which is so sad. It was the I first year that rock climbing, that oh, bouldering God. was in the Olympics. Yeah. That everyone is at the circuit, everyone at the circuit was just like, we made it only for COVID to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm following a lot of climbers now, so I get to see a lot of climbing on Instagram, and it's quite nice to watch, but yeah. I just get jealous. I mean, yeah, there's that, I'm too. like, you fuckers, I want to be there. I want to be, be climbing again. Come on. Yeah. God, I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. It is frustrating. It is frustrating, and it's frustrating when your original work feels derivative. I've written stories before and then walked through a bookstore and saw, and I was like, oh no, someone else has already written this, and it's probably better than mine. But really, the answer is it's just different than mine. Yep. So you got to tweak it. You got to make it your own. Your perspective is the only one that exists that's totally original. I believe that very firmly. But... It's still hard to see sometimes. <laughs> totally. Well, thank you so much for this research, though. I yeah. love learning about copyright law. I honestly do. Um, it's a terrifying thing that is out there for creators trying to protect them, maybe limiting other people. But ultimately, I feel like it's a, a good thing to feel like you own what you make. Oh, yeah. That's important. And yet you have input on that as well, as Tolkien insisted upon with his translations, um, making that guide and everything, trying to make it easier for people to understand where he was coming from with these very important books that were so dear to his heart. <laughs> and thank you all for listening to Finding the Glitter and the Golds. If you want to reach out and uh, like 
send us a question, send us a suggestion for an idea, a podcast we could do, you can reach us at glitterinthegold at gmail.com. Would that be copyright infringement? Maybe. No, we're not making money off of this, though. It's fine. And we're deriving it from Tolkien, so, like, do not let him sue us. <laughs> no, just give us your ideas, y'all. Give us your ideas. I'm just, I'm just throwing you, shade. Yeah, if you have, if you have questions, <laughs> that, or uh, if you want to send fan theories, which we do use on this, uh, <laughs> which are free use, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, send those to us on our, our Gmail. Uh, we're on every major podcasting app, so you can like us, rate us, write us a review, subscribe so that you can get updated whenever we have a new episode. All that jazz. Um, thank you again so much for listening. Y'all on the Shire side. <laughs> <laughs>